Hey, Generation Church, we welcome you and invite you to encounter Jesus with us. We believe that through him, we will encounter love and discover our purpose. So take a seat, lean in, and let this message fortify your faith. Um, I, let me just pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that everything that you want released to be released and everything that's to be received would be received. Right now, Jesus, we want to see where you are. Your kingdom is at hand. We thank you for your love, your great love for us, and I pray for a revelation of your love to each one of us in ways that we've not even known and seen before, and that as we experience that love, that it would catapult us to be carriers of your love to others. In Jesus' name, amen. I told Sam this morning um, that I felt like I had something. I wasn't really sure when or how, so I guess now. (laughs) But I've been drawn to a very odd place um, in Scripture over Advent, and I want to share it with you. And... um, If you open up your Bibles to Matthew 1. Now, I just want to put some things in context that we don't think a lot about when we open up our Bibles to Matthew 1. Matthew 1, um, that is the first book in the New Testament. It's the first voice about the New Covenant. And it's written by Matthew... He wrote it directly to the Jewish people. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was working for the the enemy, so to speak. And he wasn't loved or accepted. And Matthew, God chose Matthew to write the first words of the New Testament. See, there's sometimes we can miss so much of this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Emmanuel, God with us. And so we're, we're not even going to read, well, yeah, I mean, it's a bunch of names. Who loves to go, oh, wow, genealogy, I've been waiting to read this. Like, well, honestly, what do you normally do when you see the names? Skim, skip, move to the good part. But I'll tell you something, we're skipping a lot of good part. And that's what I want to talk about today, just briefly. I wasn't planning to preach, but it started sounding like a preach. <laughs> the thing about, um, so Matthew, this Jewish sinner saved by grace, is writing, and he starts the genealogy. And, and traditionally, in the Old Testament, it is extremely rare for a female to be listed in a genealogy. And Matthew, not counting Mary, brings up four. And those four, and it's not even about those four, but the thing is it's about this picture of God's amazing grace and his desire to redeem a family line and to redeem all of us in humanity. And so whether it's your own personal family or maybe it's yourself and thinking, I, 
I can never really, God, like, yeah, he forgives me, but he can never really write his story through my life. I just want to say that is a lie from the pit of the enemy. So, um, I really, there's just a lot of begatting, and I, like we're talking about the skinning over. So I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I just want to highlight four women. We'll start at verse, well, I'll read a little bit. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah, and Judah his brothers, and Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, Tamar's the first woman. This is not David's son, Tamar. This is actually, and I'm not going to go into it. I just want you to know, the Bible is not boring. And it's really not G-rated. Our lives are brokenness. is not G-rated, but Jesus is clean and pure, and there is nothing that his blood and sacrifice cannot clean and redeem. There's nothing. And sometimes I think we can lose sight of that. I, I have been privileged and honored to grow up literally in the church, and so, um, you know, but even this year, I've been seeing, like, the Lord has been allowing me to see the underbelly of stuff in my life that looks really good on the outside, but still been driven by shame and fear. We all have those things. So anyway, um, like, I, I don't, just, so Tamar, uh, yeah, Tamar, um, I'm going to flip real quick. You guys okay? So Tamar, if we go back to Genesis 38, Judah had a son who had a wife named Tamar. And I'm not going to read. I just want to. This is where it is. You can read on it later. And um, her husband died. And so the the custom was the, the brother would marry so that the family line. And then that husband died. And there were a few deaths. And then Judah said, well, I'll tell you what. Um, when When my son... My next son is, I'm paraphrasing, is, is grown, then, um, then I'll give him you and then you'll have your, your husband. And, and yet, over time, it was clear that Judah wasn't planning to keep what he had promised. And so Tamar manipulated a scene and deceived and created a scenario that is really not the point. The point is Jesus redeemed because Tamar ended up getting pregnant by Judah through deception. She's in the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, are y'all tracking how great God's grace and love is? And that he will work and move through anyone? So that, that's, that's Tamar. And like I said, that's pretty amazing. Okay, so go back to Matthew. And so then um, there's Perez and Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab, and Nashon, Nashon, Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz, and then Rahab. What do you guys know about Rahab? She was a prostitute. And that's in Joshua, so you, you know that piece. Okay. And then 
um, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Now, Ruth has a book written about her. She's awesome. You know, she was the one who, she was a Moabite, and she, um, when her husband um, died, she said, you know, where you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God, and she followed. But what you, most of us don't understand about Ruth and about Moabites and where Moabites began, who knows? Lot. And Lot, God redeemed Lot's family, set them from God, Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're going out, and the angel said, don't look back. His wife looked back. She became a pillar of salt. And Lot's two daughters were concerned about their lineage, and that's where the Moabites came from. Brokenness. Broken. I've never seen, I'm not a big reality soap opera person, but I'm telling you, that's the brokenness of humanity. And yet, this is what the New Testament, New Covenant is starting out. About God weaving through broken people a Redeemer who is holy and pure and without spot and blemish so that we can become righteous because of him. And then there's, and it's not the women. I mean, I, I want you to know <laughs> that um, in the culture, um, I think these women were scared. And the next one was totally about David, who was a man after God's heart and how he messed up. Because we all have messed up. We've all sinned. That's the thing. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus so much loved the world, us, that he gave his son before the foundation of the, the, before the, foundation of the earth. Jesus had already decided, this is what I'm going to do. The lamb was slain. So then it says, Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Her name's not even mentioned. And if you think about the time of a king, I mean, she, she was just, she, it was David that was driving this. And um, I don't know, my understanding is if a king calls someone, you come or you can get killed. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like throwing anybody on the bus. What I want to do, though, is say that Jesus, Emmanuel, so loved us that he gave his only son. And his invitation is for all of us. I want to read some notes. God's perfect story does not depend on the perfection of people, but his perfect, gracious ways. Our brokenness. Our life stories help explain why Jesus came. Everyone except Jesus Christ is a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm going to read. I find it interesting in the 
Christmas story. See, the, the genealogy, it highlights. I mean, I get really, um, well, I'll say, I'll say it this way. Uh, I have a, a sister. I love her. And she'll call, and almost regularly, I hear this, Eliza, I'm so, um, I'm so proud. I mean, we grew up in the same broken home. And she's still caught up in a lot of woundedness. And she's like, I'm just so proud of you. And yet there's this thing, and I'm like, it's not me. <laughs> Anything you see right in my life, it's not me. It's Jesus, and what he did for me, he will do for you. And, and when we get that, when we really get that, then we have so much grace and patience for those that yet do not know this beautiful Savior and this great love. I mean, I was hearing this song this morning. I mean, just worship. Could you feel the sweetness of the presence of Jesus and his love? And I woke up this morning, and I was sitting in bed, and I was just thinking, Jesus loves me. This I know is so simple and yet so profound. He loves us. Anyway, I came across a quote, a couple of quotes. I saw this somewhere this week. Oops, hold on. technology it doesn't love me <laughs> this is by someone by the name of Carlos A. Rodriguez I don't know who he is but anyway it's an unwed woman who carries God it's the pagans from the east who recognize God it's the workers in the field who hear from God it's the marginalized neighborhood that welcomes God. It's God who chooses the lonely and broken to rise. Christmas is here. Let hope in. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You, do y'all, are you familiar with who he is? He actually had, I found three quotes of him. I was looking for Advent quotes. I'd heard one from him, and I found three. I thought, well, this is interesting. Why is he like such a person to speak on Advent? Um, he was, and some might correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a pastor in occupied Germany who um, stood for truth, and it cost him his life. Is that accurate? Okay. Let me make sure I have my history right. He says, he said this quote, Advent creates people, new people. To me, that's like a Bill Johnson quote. You just need to stop and think about that for a moment. He also wrote this. A prison cell in which one waits, hopes. This is something he knew he was familiar with. I'm going to read that again. A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside 
that's not a bad picture of Advent. And this is the one, this is the quote I was looking for. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who knows themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. You know, the beauty of Jesus is that he came, and we're celebrating him coming as a baby, and he is Emmanuel. He is with us. He's here right now, and he is coming again. He's coming again, and it doesn't matter what our external circumstances are. Jesus is real, and he loves you, and he is coming for us, and that gives us great hope. He's worthy. I recently had a text from someone, and they were wrestling. They were like, does, okay, Jesus, like, the healing, the, the redemption, they were, they were in a struggle. Anybody ever in a struggle? Anybody in a struggle right now? I'm just curious. Blading, believing, wanting to see. Maybe it's a breakthrough with your children, or maybe it's a physical thing. It's a, you know, that's the thing about the gospel. It is right now, but yet not yet. But still right now. How's that work? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but they were asking me, like, so do I, like, do I believe for my healing right now? Because I'm really hurting. Or do I believe from freedom, from fear, because I'm afraid all the time? And I know there's individuals in here that conversations like that are happening. And I want to tell you, God wants us to have expectancy that he is moving right now. And to have anticipation that he is the great I am and he is here. And yet expectancy is different than expectation. Because expectation, you define how he's going to move, where expectancy just knows he's coming. When we have expectation, we get disappointed and our heart grows sick. But when we have expectancy and a confidence that he loves me and he's moving and he is for me and there's nothing I've done that is unredeemable. There's no situation that is unredeemable. And I felt like the Lord was saying, today, shame is being cut free. And fear is being cut free. Because he wants his sons and daughters to know who they are in him. And that he loves you. And nothing can separate you from that love. There's no height. There's no depth. There's, no, there's nothing that can separate us from that love. And so how I think that's how this man in a prison cell could have hope. I think it's how Paul, in a prison cell, could have hope. You know, our prison cells may not be literally in a prison cell, but there are things that bound us up, and yet God wants us to have hope and know that he is here and he is coming and he is moving. So, for the depraved, the excluded, the damaged, all of us have hearts. Is there a week that goes by that you don't see an area that you're like, oh. <laughs> but Jesus came and he's here 
and he's coming again. I think that's all I have. Amen. You know, the good news is that the genealogy of Jesus went through a lot of broken people, and that bloodline reached you. And the good news is that the broken and hurting places um, in our lives, He's restoring all things and making everything new. That is good news. People that did not have hope in the lineage of Jesus found hope. And the good news is that hope is knocking at your door and is getting ready to help you. Thanks for sharing, honey. Um, let me just go ahead and get, get situated here real quick. And then we'll get going. You know, I was reflecting this week just on the reality of of how Christ literally laid down everything to reach you and me, to reach us. And the extent that he has gone through in his life from his birth until his crucifixion demonstrated the love that he has for us. Love has action. And to the extent of, of all that he went through, um, going to the, to the low places, going to the dark places, going to the lonely places to reach you and me. His love knows no bounds. And I'm so grateful that he rescued me and found me when I was in a dark, dark place. He rescued and found you when you were in a dark, dark place. A light shined upon you and gave you hope and gave you the good news. And this love, it didn't stop even though it found you. It's continuing to love you. It likes you. It sees the best in you. Love is, is eternal. And he just can't get enough of you. So just when you think you discovered all that you know about love, guess what? He surprises you the next day. And it comes in a new way, a new expression. It might be through another individual or a situation that takes place. But his love is continually finding ways to express itself to you. Because you're his child. Because you're created and thought about and made in his image. And the greatest example that we find in scripture about love is where love lays down its life. Love always lays down its rights, itself, its pleasures, its wants, its desires, Love lays down everything for another. 
And that is the ultimate expression of love. So John 15, 13 says this. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So love must have action to be real love or to be God kind of love. It's got to have an expression. So to walk in this kind of love is going to, is going to cost us. To love like Christ is going to cost you everything. And so it, it, challenges, it challenged me this week as I was just reflecting on what love does. And love lays down everything. Is that where am I laying down my life to love others? Where am I laying down my life to reach others? Where am I willing to give up my rights, my personal comfort, my desires that I might love others? It challenges me. Does it challenge you? So in that, I, I, I just happened to stumble upon a story, a true story of Frank Foley. He was a British spy hero. He was kind of like James Bond, but he didn't look like James Bond. He was a short little guy, bald with a little pot belly. And he was not the normal spy that you would think of or typical one. Uh, he, wore, he wore these, you know, funny looking glasses. They're like, you know, they're real round. And, and so, uh, so... He was not, you know, the typical stereotype uh, uh, spy, as you might say. So, but he was an undercover uh, spy for the British embassy uh, in Berlin. And he was, a, he was passport control operator. So he controlled all the passports. And, um, and he was fully aware that... Uh, that the Jews were being treated harshly uh, by Nazi, by the Nazis. So Foley decided to take action by forging passports and altering visas to help the Jewish people escape Hitler's rule. And what he began to do, he began to go into the concentration camps to issue travel documents and visas that were altered for the Jews. So, in this, I mean, this was heroism. I mean, this guy that did not look like a spy would go into the camps and would hand out altered visas to the Jews, and they said that he rescued more than 10,000 men, women, and children from Nazi Germany by going undercover, he laid down his life. He knew the, his life you know, was at risk in dying. But he did it for the sake of the Jewish people that were being treated harshly. He forsaked his comforts, his, his desires, and he laid it all down to see Jews escaped to be, to be set free from concentration camps. I'm just utterly amazed at this man's heroism. And 
And as we read the book of Philippians, um, we read that Jesus, being equal with God, humbled himself to the point where he stripped himself of his divinity. And in essence, he laid it aside. His, his, the splendor, the majesty, the awesomeness, the holiness of our God, he laid all of that aside and he became a man just like you and me and in that he did that with the motivation to redeem mankind to win them back to save them from their brokenness to save them from their sins and so to fulfill the will of the father he laid down his right to wealth to a good reputation to be served, to enjoy physical comforts, and to make his own decisions. And then it, we're challenged to do the same. The scripture challenges us to do the same and have this attitude where he laid it all down. Because Philippians 2.5 says this. Philippians 2.5-8. through 8, have this attitude in yourself. So it starts out with, have this in yourself, think about this, which also was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus laid down his right for wealth and for splendor and to be honored as king of the universe. He laid all of that down in order to redeem man from sin. You know, it is amazing to just ponder the fact of the name Emmanuel, God with us. When you think about it, that God so loved us that he, he just, he stripped himself of his splendor and his glory, and he became like a man to reach you and me. It's beyond my mind. And to think that he really should have been born in royalty. He should have been born in a nice palace. He should have been born with great accolades. But he was born in a stable that smelled. He was born in a manger that I'm sure wasn't very sanitary. And the God of creation chose to be born in such humble conditions in an effort to reach you and me. The extent of God's love for us is extraordinary. And really, the promise of Emmanuel is the greatest love story ever told. We can read about a lot of love stories. And love stories are wonderful to read. But this one is the greatest love story of all. Emmanuel, God with us. 
He wanted to be with us, and nothing was going to stop him. His, his heart, so full of love, had to take action. And he took it in a way that was so profound. So he enjoyed, and, and really, as a creator, he had the opportunity to enjoy all things. And every right to have wealth and riches. But he confined himself to the limited means of being born in a carpenter's household. And you know, carpenters, I mean, they didn't make a lot of money back then. They didn't have a lot of resources. And he limited himself to a family that really didn't have the means to really almost provide for their basic meal. And during his years of public ministry, Jesus, you think about it, he did not have a home. Do you guys realize that? He didn't have a home. We all get to go home after this service today. Have a good lunch and take a nice nap and stay in our home and enjoy the, the nice items that God has blessed us with. He didn't have a home to go to. We'd be leaving church and all of a sudden, well, hey, Jesus, where are you going? I don't know. I don't have a home. I don't even have a pillow to lay my head on. The foxes have holes, but I don't have a home. And he limited himself to those conditions for a purpose. And that's to reach you. He had no one really, I mean, people would... Uh, be very hospitable and would care for his needs. But in his meekness and gentleness, he would say, now give to the poor. Store up treasures in heaven, not on this earth. Think about the poor. Think about those less fortunate. You know, when, when Christ returned home to be with his father, he returned the wealthiest man ever lived because he bought salvation for all. He was the richest man. He, though he was poor, he did that so that we might become rich in him. So Jesus laid down his right to a good reputation. You know, and can you imagine? Jesus is in heaven. He's worshipped. There's, there's, there's splendor. There's majesty. There's honor. The King of kings and the Lord of lords came into the world knowing that he was going to allow himself to have no reputation. Highest reputation to no, no reputation. From the heights of splendor down to being railed at, being called Beelzebub, being told that he is a glutton, being told that, that he's a, hanging out with the wrong people. You got a bad reputation, Jesus. But that was his choice. He went low to reach you.
He made himself of no reputation, Philippians 2, 7. So rather being born into wealth and prominence, Jesus was born into poverty and obscurity. And his hometown, get this, his hometown was so poor, uh, his hometown was, had no respect and no prominence that when Philip told Nathaniel about Christ, Nathaniel basically said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Come on! This dude comes from Backtown. But Jesus obeyed every directive of his heavenly father. He, he obeyed everything that his father said. But he still, his behavior cost him a lot of trouble. He just spoke the truth. And they wanted to kill him. You know, I mean, they were shocked to find out that he was hanging out, you know, he allowed a woman that was a prostitute wash his feet. He, he, uh, he offended the Pharisees on the Sabbath because he healed a man. So he was really, really kind of getting under the skin of the Pharisees. But it wasn't, they was just trying to pick a fight. He was fulfilling the scripture that he would be of no reputation. And so in that, he was walking out his life in a manner to go low so he could find you and reach you. Before you met Jesus, were you in a low place in life? Think about before you knew Christ. Before I knew Jesus, I was in a really low place, a very dark place. And I'll never forget the day when I, I remember I, you know, you know me, I like naps. And so it was in college, and I remember uh, it was an afternoon nap. I didn't want to study, and I laid down, and my life was a mess. And I woke up from a nap, and the Lord just all of a sudden opened up a panoramic view of my life. And I saw how dark it was. And I saw where I was going. And I saw that I was in a very serious situation. It frightened me so much that I packed up in the middle of a semester, told my sorority brothers, Hasta la vista, baby. I'm out of here. I was so frightened and, and because of seeing the darkness that I said, I called up my mom and dad. I said, I'm coming home. And when I came home, the next day I can remember, I called a, a youth pastor at this church. I never, I didn't even know the guy. It was a Baptist church in Sanford, North Carolina. And I just said, can I come see you? I, I just want to talk. <laughs> I said, I got to talk to somebody because this really scared me. <laughs> but I went, I went to see him. And he was so gracious and kind. But he began to share me, with me the good news. That he had the answer to my darkness. And that was Jesus. 
And in that, I can remember that the Lord met me at a very low place. And he rescued me. He was falsely accused. He was arrested falsely. And he was crucified. That is the ultimate humiliation. Falsely accused. And then he's arrested. And he's crucified for nothing. But it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So really, in light of eternity, Jesus understood that his reputation among men was really just temporary. He knew that as he went low and was obedient to the Father in all things, that there was going to be a reward to him. And that he would be given the name above all names. And in that, every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow that he is Lord. And Jesus laid down his right to be served. The creator of every living person. Christ had the right to be served. He knew you before the foundation of the world. But however, he came to earth and he did not demand that others serve him. Instead, he took opportunities to demonstrate humble service to those that were in need. And you know, one of the most demeaning tasks of Christ's day, I don't think we fully understand it, was that that was the washing the feet of guests that came to a house. That was, one of, that was a very, very low-level position. And on the evening of his betrayal and arrest, Jesus chose to go low and wash their feet, which blew their mind. But it was all for the purpose of reaching you with love. Which challenges us. He says, have the same attitude, have the same mind as Christ, who served. We need to find ways to serve one another. We need to find ways to go low and reach people and love them right where they are. No matter what they're going through, what they've done, our attitude is to serve and love others as Christ would. Verse 12 of John 13. So when he had washed their feet, he had taken his garments and reclined at the table again. And he said to them, do you know what I've just done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, and for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. We, don't, we might not have water basins up here every Sunday. 
But there's expressions that can be like washing people's feet also that we need to ask the Lord, how can we go low and humbly serve one another? Because we're to have the same attitude. So Jesus taught us really that true leadership involves serving others, not demanding that we be served. He laid it on his life for others, and now we're to receive the fellowship and be devoted in service to all those who believe. You know, and Jesus laid down his rights to physical comforts. His lifestyle of traveling, teaching, ministering to the needs of the people along the way did not include many of life's basic comforts. He didn't stop off at a nice holiday inn on the way of travels to go and minister to those out and about. He slept in places that probably weren't very comfortable. And when a man told Christ, hey, you know what? I want to be your disciple and I'm going to follow you. He said, he warned him. He warned him. He said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the son of man does not have a place to lay his head. And he meant it. You know, he... He traveled many dusty roads. The roads in between Jerusalem and Galilee are very dusty, windy, treacherous. They go in ravines, and and it's just, it's a very rugged area. It's not a walk through the park going from Galilee to, to Jerusalem. And he preached open air, he slept on the ground, and he sailed the choppy seas of the Sea of Galilee. You know, the fact that, that, that he was sleeping in the boat goes to say, show that the guy was tired. He was weary. When you can sleep in a boat and the waves are rocking and rolling, indicates he didn't have a nap that day. I mean, he was going to have it on the boat. So, I want, I want, I want, I'm just going to give you a picture of his life for one day. This is one day with Jesus, what he did in one day. And I want you guys just to kind of reflect upon this. In the, in the Gospel of Mark, it records that a strenuous schedule of a typical day in the life of Jesus. He starts out with, he taught in a synagogue. He delivered a possessed man that was demon-possessed. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then when evening came, after sun had set, they began bringing him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Now, this is the evening time. And the whole city had gathered at the door. Hello. How would you like all Asheville show up at your door after you've already worked real hard all day long, nine to five? They gathered at his door, and then it says he healed many of who were ill with various diseases. He cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. That was was the daytime. Early in the morning, while it was still dark, 
Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there with his father. His life was fully laying down everything to reach the people, to love the people, to care for the people. He worked hard for us. But he understood that earth wasn't his final home. <laughs> he was here on mission, and he was here to get his father's business done. And you know, and lastly, Jesus really, he laid down his right to make his own decisions. You know, I think probably one of the most difficult rights to yield is making the final decisions on things. I... Does anyone struggle with you kind of want it to go your way? I mean, you know, I see it. I see it right. It's got to go this way. And, but the beautiful thing is that he fully yielded his right to his father, which really developed a spirit of meekness and gentleness and humbleness. And that he lived in complete surrender to his father's direction. And we see this when Christ was 12 years old. He understood his calling and he expressed his desire to be about his father's business. Can you imagine this? I mean, really, I, I was just thinking about this. You know, his mom and dad had traveled, I think, almost two, almost two whole days, two or three whole days away from Jesus. And they realized, "Ooh, we forgot the boy. Let's go back and get him. So they go on back, you know, and I imagine, you know, that Jesus was probably sleeping in the temple, was uh, just resting, being there, teaching the Pharisees what they didn't know. And, and then they get back and they see him and in Luke 2, 47, and he said to them, why is it that you're looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? At, even at that age, he was yielding his heart and his direction and his will to do what his father had set for him to do. And that was the only thing he was going to do. Until 30 years old. And then even at that point, and then even after he said, okay, mom and dad, listen, I'm here for my father. But right now, I am going to yield myself to you. I'm going to yield myself to you. And I'm going to honor you and love you until he was 30 years old. And he began his public ministry. So even in that, even in his ministry, he made no decisions independently of his heavenly father. He always had this attitude, not my will, but your will be done. That was continually throughout all of Scripture. He laid down the right for his will. Philippians 2, 9, verses 9 through 11. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And this attitude of obedience to the Father is to be our example, is to be our example to walk in those footsteps. 1 John 3.16, I'm going to leave you with this verse. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. He laid down His privileges. He laid down His wealth. He laid down everything. His comfort. He laid down everything for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We're to lay down our lives for one another. In the same manner, in the same attitude, in the same way that Christ laid down His life, we're to lay down our lives for each other. And that is the truest expression of love that you're going to find in the Bible. Is ones that will be willing to lay down their lives. So we need to ask ourselves the question. Are we willing to lay down our lives for others? Do we think of the other person more highly than we do ourselves? Laying down his life is the manner in which he showed love to us. And it started in a little manger. All the way up to you and me. I'm challenged by this kind of love. Because you know what? It takes God to love God. <laughs> and it's going to take God for us to love one another. Right? Am I the only one here? Y'all agree with me? It's going to take God for us to love each other. But that's good news. Because it's not about us. It's not about us. You know, we, if we all can be dishonest, we've all lost our rights at the cross. So we're all on a level playing field with one another. And I'm just so grateful for the love of our Father through His Son Jesus that reached me. And I'm sure you're grateful that He reached you. And it came down through His bloodline. He came down through a broken people. And I think what Eliza shared was so profound. Of the four women that were mentioned in the lineage, Jesus made sure that those were in the book. Why? Because he didn't have to come through a perfect lineage to redeem mankind, to win them back to himself. He wanted to show that this bloodline can flow through Broken and hurting people. And it can restore all things just like it met you. That's an incredible testimony. So when I read that, now I'm going I'm, I'm to read them women. That's incredible. I mean, that is utterly amazing. I had never thought about that. 
Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Let's all stand. Well, Lord, we thank you for how you demonstrated love time and time again throughout your birth, your life, your ministry, all the way to the cross. You were continually laying down everything to reach each of us right where we are. So, Lord, I pray today that your love would flow in this house. That your love would touch each and every heart here. Because you're continually wanting to love us right where we are. And Lord, I pray today that your love would reach every heart here. That you would restore all things. And those that are waiting on some very difficult things. That your love would meet them right now. And encourage their hearts that the best is yet to come. Love wins all the time. And I thank you and praise you, Lord, that your love is so powerful that it goes to the, to the depths, to the hurts, to the, to the pain to restore all things and make all things new. Father, I pray today that the love of Jesus would be poured out in the hearts of everyone here. And you would woo and draw us even when we don't feel lovable. Even when we don't feel like you love us. It's not a feeling. It's action. And you put your love in action by reaching each of us in a very practical and tangible way. So, Lord, I pray that your love today would abound in our hearts and lives. And that your love would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would be shed abroad in the hearts of everyone here. Oh, Father, let your love abound. And I pray, Father, that we would be a church that would find ways to love one another as Christ loved us. And we thank you for that love. In Jesus' name.